Thank you, Alan. It is good being back with you. My wife and I and, and my mother-in-law spent uh, the last week up in uh, northwestern Nebraska and southeastern uh, Wyoming and then over on the eastern side of Nebraska as well, just I- enjoying. And some people say, well, wh- why would you go out there? At least that's what Alan was wondering last week. Why would, why would you anybody go up to, well, there's nothing there. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a beautiful place uh, in, in our, the geological setting of, of the United States, but it's also got some significant historical things. When the westward expansion began and, and things began to move forward uh, with our pioneering days and, and stuff, so a lot of history was out there, and so I enjoyed some of that history. But there's better history to talk about, and that is found within the Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up the book of Romans. We're in chapter 5 today, beginning in verse 1. We're going to take that through verse 11. But before we get into that, I read once uh, a, a man had said this, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there's no current to plug into. That's what Ernest Hemingway said about his own life. And we ask, how, how can that be? I mean, how can life be so dead, so lonely? Well, if you lived up in northwestern Nebraska, you'd figure out how lonely it is. All right? Now, Ernest Hemingway, he was known as, as a tough guy. I mean, he had this image, this globetrotter, this, this big game hunter, this, this guy who would go to all these exotic places, and, and, and he was a bullfighter and a, and a writer, and in all the uniqueness of these things, he, he lived... Uh, as a man who lived on the edge of life, and, and he could drink the best man under the table. I mean, that was his persona of, of whatever. He'd been married four times, which means he at least had four women who found him to be an attractive person somehow. Uh, and yet, during this time, he lived this life without any moral restraints. Well, we just heard from one businessman says there needs to be morality in life. But on a Sunday, on a sunny Sunday morning in Idaho, with a shotgun, he took his own life. His life really was not worth living. But I want you to understand, there was another side to Ernest Hemingway that you may not know about. He grew up in an evangelical Christian home. His grandparents were missionaries. And his father was a devoted Christian and a friend of none other than Dwight L. Moody, uh, who created the, the wonderful ministry up in the Chicago area, a great evangelist. His family, they, they conformed their lifestyle to the strictest codes of Christianity, and he, as a boy, was very active in church. So how do we get from there to here? Well, something didn't ring true for Hemingway, who who seemed to embrace all that he encountered. And he was looking for something beyond that. And and really, it all came out when he was a war correspondent in World War I. And he began to see the atrocities of war. And his ritualized faith failed him. He didn't know what to do. So he became a little soured on God for allowing such cruel things in our world, and he rejected religion that he once had. But you know what? When I look at a man like Ernest Hemingway, and I look at 
what the Scripture has to hold for us, there is a difference. You see, faith has to be more than just an acknowledgement of some religion. Faith has to be that which motivates and changes the lifestyle in which we live on a daily basis. And, and it leads us through all the atrocities and all the, the miseries that we may encounter along the way. That's what faith does. We'll never find peace in this world or an assurance of life, of something that's better yet to come without faith in Jesus. And that's what Paul is going to tell us here in Romans chapter 5. So let's begin reading there. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul's major theme we discover in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through all the way through uh, chapter 5, verse 21 is that the only way for sinners to be justified, that, that means to be, to be saved, to have an assurance of their salvation, is through faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And, and so he explains how this justification of faith operates in chapters 3 and chapter 4. And now here in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, he, he is going to explain to us the main result of what being justified by faith is. Namely, it's living with an assurance, with a hope, with a guarantee of our salvation. So the main theme of Romans chapter 5, 1 through 11 is this aspect of the assurance of salvation. An assurance is is in essence a state of mind like the one that Paul expresses in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where he says, I'm not ashamed, for I know that whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. This firm conviction of assurance is also seen here in Romans chapter 5 in reference to the hope there in verse 2, this, this biblical hope and really, biblical hope has, has, I think, three aspects to it. 
The first is this. It, it is the expectation of something yet in the future. We're going to hope for something that is yet not achieved or reached. And so it's this, that which is in the future. So we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25, for in this hope, he says, we were saved. But he says, now hope that is seen, it's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, assurance begins with our confidence in the present and on our relationship with God. And it leads us to the assurance of what yet lies in the future, which is that inheritance that he tells us of this future, which is hope. The second thing hope is, is this. I think it's, it's a confident expectation. I can confidently believe something's going to happen, and as, as opposed to that which is futile or, or uh, an unde- uncertain desire or, or an, uh, something that is unexpected, unexpected or unlikely. I, I have this confidence that it's going to happen. It's called hope because hope is still the object of the future, not because it's uncertain. A lot of times we think in our world today when we use the word hope, it is a wishful thought. Oh, I wish I could get that. But that's not what hope is biblically. Hope is a guarantee and assurance of something yet to come, that it will take place. Biblical hope will not disappoint us. And so he tells us there in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has been given to us. So true, the hope of our future glory is often hidden in the dark clouds of our life today and in all the miseries that are around us and the suffering and the struggles and, 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 and the, the animosities in this world. And it wants to cloud hope and tell us that there is nothing really to look forward to in the future. But the basis of our hope is what the author of Hebrews in chapter 6 verse 18 says it's these two immutable these two unchangeable things which are God's promise and God's oath all right he's promised us something and he has sworn that he's going to fulfill his promise so these two things that are not changeable that God says he will get these two things done he will get this done for us we can put our hope in it because it's not based upon what we can do but it's based upon what he can do And we know he is capable of doing anything and everything that he desires. Third, it's an expectation of something that is good. As opposed to the expectation of something bad. You see, the something good that we are assured of is the glory of God. That's what he's telling us. See, if Jesus Christ is in us if we have a relationship with him we have the hope of glory colossians chapter 1 verse 27 paul also writes to the church there he says to them god chose to make known how great among the gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is christ in you the hope of glory and here in Romans 5, 2, Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of glory. Our hope is not that just one day that we will behold his glory, but, but that it, in a limited sense right now, we actually participate or we partake of it. You see, the, the glorified human body 
will be like Jesus's. At least Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tells us that. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do what? He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to be subject to all things to himself. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? To be, to be able to dwell within the very presence of God's glory, so much so that it transforms us to where we are reflecting and experiencing the glory of God. Every time Moses went up on the mountain or in the tent of meeting and he came down from his conversation with God, he radiated the glory of God. When Jesus took his three disciples up on the mountainside there in, in northern Israel, and while he was there, he himself transfigured before their eyes, and the glory of God radiated from him, along with Moses and Elijah. Our lowly bodies one day will experience this glorious presence of God in everything around us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-5 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what our hope is all based upon. We can expect that God is going to fulfill this. He has promised us this, and he's guarding it into that time that we have that opportunity to stand within his presence. That's what our hope is about. Second, the, the, real, the relationship between justification by faith and the assurance of our salvation. He, he talks about this in the first couple of verses here in chapter 1. Our understanding of justification by faith is the key to our assurance of our salvation. Justification is the equivalent to basically saying your sins are forgiven, that you, you, you've been made right with God, our debt of sin is, is erased, and we have been justified, we have been declared righteous by God so we can be before Him. And we don't pay off that debt ourselves, even though we have a debt to sin, He has paid it in our place. By his death on the cross, he culminates our ability then to stand before God forgiven. And he bestows this upon us through faith, not by anything that we do, not by anything that we can purchase or obtain on our own, but it's what he has done for us, and it's his personal righteousness. Now, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, it says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. But in Titus, Paul tells Titus, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. How? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Yeah, there's that, that hope again. You see, so between the justification by faith 
and the assurance of our salvation is all based upon what Jesus has done. The practical consequences of knowing that then we are justified is this blessed assurance and having this peace with God. We don't have to stand before him afraid of what he's going to do because we know what we've done. We can stand before him in peace, assured of what he's going to do for us because of what he's already done for us. It's actually the state of what we would call objective peace, a relationship with God that consists of of this peace instead of hostility or animosity or wrath that we should receive. Now, this peace, in Baker's Dictionary of Theology, Charles Feinberg says this, peace is the tranquil state of soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content and content with its earthly lot or whatever sort that is. So peace then becomes this tranquil state which we don't have anxieties, we don't have worries, we don't have fears that we know we can just walk up and feel confident. That's that's the simplicity of it all. What he has done for us enables us to relax because he's got things under control we don't have to worry then we have been reconciled with God not through anything that we've done to make amends with God but through the saving work of Jesus Christ our Lord and what he has done for us on the cross so that's what Romans 5 10 11 says for while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son Much more now, he says, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, not only are we going to be saved by his life and by his death, he says we can then rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's been this whole plan from the beginning is to reconcile us to him. Remember, he would walk in the garden with Adam. But sin came in, and the walk was done. He came and walked with us again in Jesus, so that you and I can walk with him once more and enjoy a peace with him and a contentment with him and a lack of fear because of what he has done through Jesus Christ. And only because of Jesus can we have this type of peace And that gives us our hope. So knowing that we are in this reconciled relationship with God, it gives us not only this objective peace, but also a subjective inner peace, which is expressed then in us having the assurance of our salvation. We know we've got this. Not because we've done anything, but because He has. This subjective inner peace of knowing that we are justified, that means that we're in this state of objective peace with God, it's crucial for attaining subjective peace or assurance where we feel that we can relax, that we can let our guard down, that we can cuddle up, put our head in his lap, and not be afraid of what he's going to do. And that's, that's what it is. It is this assurance that we know he loves us because he's demonstrated that to us. Christians truly are at peace with God, but confusion sometimes about how faith 
works and justification are related often keeps us from understanding what true peace is all about. We know that Jesus came into this world to bring peace to the world. But our wars have demonstrated that there is no peace in this world. But there is peace with God. Our problem with our assurance is that often Christians have some confusion over how faith works and justification are related. So we don't understand how we can have this inner peace about going to face God one day. Only when we come to that understanding of what He has done, not by anything that we could do, but by what He has done, then we can breathe easier. And we can have this inner peace, which really is the basic element of the assurance of our salvation, being comfortable with Him. A lot of people are afraid to go and stand before God today because they don't have that comfort. But our faith in what He has done and in His action should enable us to breathe easy. So beginning with the state of enmity, that means that we are full-on enemies of God and hostile towards Him, and we don't want to be around Him because we want to do things our own way. All right, The following sequence of events takes place. While we were enemies... God's love sent Jesus to die in our place. In essence, then, removing his hatred or his wrath or his enmity towards us for what we have done. We then accept God's offer of reconciliation through faith, giving up our adversarial role against him and our own enmity towards God. And then God then bestows this gift upon us, this gift of righteousness that we don't deserve. In other words, he justifies us. Now, now this is the beginning of our objective state of inner peace, all right? Because we understand the meaning of these events, we can feel this, this peace and then have the assurance of salvation. He tells us here in Romans that we're actually standing in the grace of God there in verse 2. This grace the grace that Paul has just explained in chapters 3 and chapter 4 is the grace that brings justification. It's the action of God in our lives. And, and the standing that he uses this word, standing implies that it's a, that it's a present, ongoing state, and a, a relationship. It's not something that was past, but it's something that happened, and it's continuing to happen, and we are there standing in the grace of God. You're, you're not in this, you're in it, and you're out of it type of relationship. You don't stand in the grace of God, and then you're out of it because you sin. And you stand. In the, a lot of people get this wrong. They believe that when a Christian sins, he's going to hell again. So now he's got to whatever. Unless he asks for forgiveness and seeks forgiveness, God's going to send him to hell because he's sinned. So what happens if your final thing that you do right before the moment you die is a sin? Do you go to heaven or hell? And you don't get an opportunity to say, forgive me. You see, what Christ has done is he has covered our sins, the past, the present, and our future, in his act upon the cross. So we can have confidence. It's not a, you're saved, you're not, you're saved, you're not, you're saved, you're not, based upon our sinfulness after the fact. We're saved and we continue to stand in this. Matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
he, he refers to an, 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 an instead to the, to the constant, ongoing, repentant confession that we're sinners, that we are standing in this grace of God. Finally, justification of faith, by faith, is this firm foundation, this solid rock uh, for our confident hope. Right? It's, it's that undergirding for us. It assures us that the love of God which produces and provides the unspeakable gift for us that we are, while yet his enemies, that we became his friends. That's important for us to know. The message of Romans 5, 1 through 11 is best understood in, in this kind of context. Past, present, and future. All right? And so these are, in essence, three stages of our existence that are presented here in these 11 verses in Romans 5. All right, so we're going to talk about being under God's wrath. We were what? We were, as he says in verse 6, helpless. We were ungodly. In verse 8, he tells us that we were sinners. And in verse 10, he says we were the enemies of God. But what are we under God's justification? All right? We are now justified, as we discover in verses 1 and 9. We are at peace with God in verse 1. We are standing in grace in verse 2. We are rejoicing in hope, he tells us in verse 2 and verse 11. We are rejoicing in suffering in verse 3. And in verse 5, he says, we are God's, we have God's love in our hearts. And in verse 9, we are under Christ's blood. That's who we are today. What will we be within God's glory? Well, we will be, in verse 2, the glory of God, and we'll be saved from the wrath of God in verse 9. And in verse 10, he, he, he lets us to understand that we're going to be fully saved. This is everything that God has done. So there are, there are two transitions that are made within this process. What we were, what we are, and then what we are to what we will be. All right. Now, as Christians, we've already made the first transition from what we were to what we are today. That's already taken place. The only thing we have to worry about is now from what we are today to where we're going to be in the future. All right. And the issue of assurance is whether we're going to make it to that final transition, right? That's our problem right now. Do I have the hope and the assurance that I'm going to make it to this last step, to receive the full glory of God. So how do we make the first transition from, wrath, from His wrath to His grace? Well, that was demonstrated in His unequaled love for us when He sent Jesus to the cross. All right? And when we put our faith in Jesus and what He has done, we are then reconciled to Him. We are no longer His enemies, but now we are not only friends, but he's going to call us children. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps, perhaps, for a good person, one would dare to even to die. But, but God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
See, there was nothing you could do to get yourself out of a sinful position. Once you've sinned, you're a sinner. And the penalty for that is the wrath of God. And it is separation from Him for all eternity. There's no other way that you can pay that penalty off than going through that. So while we were sinners, in His unconditional love for us, He sent His Son to die for us. But we can't forget that that first transition had to go through the cross of Jesus Christ. So while we were still in the position of of qualified for God's wrath, he determined that it would be expedient to his purpose to send his son to die on a cross to reconcile us to himself so that we would have the ability to have relationship with us. So he is the one who then bridged that gap and he stepped across the great divide so that he would then have relationship with us and he would be the one offering us his grace and he would be the one that would be merciful to us and he would be the one that could justify us and and proclaim us to be righteous and reconcile us into a right position with him. You see, the whole transition came about by the means of our faith in him and what he did on the cross. And so Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's what He has done. And we simply have to accept what He has done and believe that He has the capability and the desire to want to have relationship with us and want to forgive us of our sins, so much so that He sent His Son into the world. But we have yet to make the transition from His grace to glory. I think another question arises at this point in time. Which of these two transitions, from the wrath of God to His grace, or from His grace to His glory, is the more difficult? I think it's the first. Coming from His wrath to His grace... There's no way we could accomplish that. We just can't. So he did. But going from grace to glory, it's simply continuing to live by faith in what he has the capability of doing and in fulfilling his promises and his oath to us that he will accomplish this. See, Paul's point is all about this. It's about God's love. It's about Christ on the cross, and it's about our faith and how those together are sufficient enough to get us to the glory that he has prepared for us in heaven, that which would appear to be an impossibility on our own. Now that we are on good terms with God, now that we are reconciled to him, we are his friends and, and we're at peace with God, we have a, a much greater reason to believe that that same love, that that same cross, and that same faith is going to move us into this last transition from here to heaven. And so he tells us in verse 10, For while, if while we were enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life." That's the foundation on which we put our hope. Not on what I have done, 
but on what he has done and that he lives even today. And he tells us if he can live, then we can live. And he asked Mary, do you believe that? Mary and Martha had lost a brother, Lazarus. He was dead four days. But Jesus wants to know, do you believe that I have the ability to have resurrection and life? Yeah, they do. Most of his followers understood that he had the authority to bring life back from the dead. But even his own life would come back. And he promises us the same thing. If we believe in him, even if we die, yet shall we live. That is the foundation of our hope. Because he lives. See, as a, as a matter of fact, we have much more reason to think that God loves us even more now since we are his friends than what we were when we were his enemies. In John chapter 14, verse 20, 21, Jesus said this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will what? Will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Isn't that great news? If we love God, he's going to love us. But he's the one who first loves. John will later tell us that in one of the letters he writes. So it suggests to us there's this new depth of dimension of love upon us. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? That whoever believes in him should what? Not perish, but have eternal life. Now that's God and his love for all of mankind and the redemptive work that he did on the cross, so that was his love for the world. But now there's a different love that goes beyond just that love. Because how much more does a man love his children than those in the world? That's what we're seeing within this. Not, not only did God love those who were his enemies, but he loves us because he's adopted us into his family. We become his children. And so in 1 John chapter, th uh, chapter 3, verse 1, John tells us this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. See, there's a uniqueness here. N not everybody in the world gets to be called a child of God. It's only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and his redeeming work. They're the ones who he says, look at this. You believe in my son? You can be my son too. You can be my daughter. You're my children. How much love that he has for us in this. And when God first expressed his love toward us, we were his enemies. But now we're reconciled to him and his love for us is even greater. So moving us from what we were in the wrath of God to where we are now under the grace of God, to where we will be in the glory of God. It's such an easier transition. 
God will not save those who are at peace with him if he went to the extremes to die for those who were his enemies. Will not his loves be sufficient enough to make this final transition from where we are today to where we'll be? So here's where it is. As a Christian, you should have confidence in what lies ahead. You shouldn't have to worry about things yet to come. You shouldn't be scared or afraid. It doesn't matter what lies ahead. It doesn't matter if you have to go through the, a thousand years of, of hardship and tribulation. Because for us, we know what is great. We know what He's promised. And so don't worry about things to come. Rejoice in the opportunity that is coming. Because that's what He's prepared for you. And so we get to receive the glory of God. And just as surely as we did not span the chasm from wrath to grace on our own, we don't have to do it on our own from here to there. He's the one that's going to do it for us. We're always trying to get out of things and to, to get our own freedom. But our freedom is found in Jesus Christ. Eric Wies was born to perform. And, and so with the help of his brother, Theodore, he began to do different things to, to find ways of getting himself free. As with a lot of siblings, the two of them had this rivalry that wouldn't quit. As Eric would become proficient with one escaping uh, of a variety of, of things like handcuffs or shackles or chains, he, he began to work on escaping from the straight jacket. You know, that's a little more when you can't use your hands. How are you going to, you know, do this and, and all that? Well, what he, he tried to do, first off, is when he would put on the straight jacket, he would then go hide behind a curtain, all right? And then he would come out, ta-da, all right? Well, his, his brother Theodore was a little more daring, and so he decided he would up one his brother, you know? And, and so he, he stepped out in front. And then Theodore learned that if he would dislocate his shoulder, then he could get out with one arm and eventually get out of the, the straitjacket. Well, Eric, again, in the rivalry, had to go even faster than what his brother did, so he was able to, to get out of it in, in less than three minutes by dislocating both shoulders. Right? This was just his, his process and his plan. All right? Now, over time, Eric, as you might know him, Harry Houdini, began to try other various ways of escaping without such dire consequences of dislocations and things. And he managed to come up with more streamlined and less painful methods of extracting himself from the straitjacket and became known as the ultimate escape artist. While Eric, or Harry Houdini, proved that it was possible to free himself from the straitjacket, there are still restraints in life that you cannot free yourself from. And one is the straitjacket of sin that we have put on ourselves and we cannot escape. But Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. That's where we are. I have hope that I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry about 10 years from now or 100 years from now. I don't have to worry about when I stand before God in heaven what I'm going to have to say to justify myself because there's nothing I can say. I'm stuck on my own. But if I've developed a relationship with Jesus Christ by putting my faith in Him and enabling His grace to do the work for me, then I can stand before God and before I can say a word, He will stand in my place and say, He's in. He's my brother. And God says, I knew it all along. We don't have to worry. Our assurance of our salvation is not based upon what we do. It's on what He did for us. If you want to put your faith in Him and you want to trust in Him, today's a good day to begin doing that. We're going to sing. And if you want to begin a new walk with Christ, a new relationship with Him, today would be a wonderful opportunity. In the last few weeks, we've had uh, different people that have, have given their life to Him. They've been baptized. And they've said, I'm starting this new life. I am, I'm going to do it His way. Maybe that's what you need to do. That you need to, to die to yourself. To bury the old man and by faith live in Jesus. I don't know where you are in your walk with Him, but I know where He wants to be in His walk with you. He wants to show you the streets of heaven. He wants to introduce you to the God who created you, His Father, who loves you beyond measure. Let's stand together.